Hi everyone, this is Raoul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Pump, my friend, good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thanks for having me. Not at all. I'd love to hear what the hell you're up to these days, because you kind of, you know, you, you closed down what you were doing, pivoted away to a family office, and you're now a man of mystery. All I just see is your motivational tweets every morning, and I'm trying to figure out, okay, what the hell are you up to? Because you're clearly up to a lot, because you're up to no good generally. Yeah, um, we got a, a good amount of stuff going on. Uh, so if I really think about, you know, where I've been in my career, I've built companies, I've invested in, I don't know, probably 150 companies, something like that at this point. And I eventually just got to the point where I said, I want to do something that I can do for the next 20 years, 30 years. And when you take that mentality, you realize a couple of things. One, managing money on the behalf of other people is fun. It's great. But it's not like managing your own money. Um, and, uh, you know, look, it, it's uh, I feel incredibly fortunate, right? When you first start out, you basically need everyone else's money because that's how you get started. Uh, at some point, you just say, look, even if uh, – uh, my own money is less than what I could raise. Uh, there's certain advantages that it provides. Um, and and also it gives you the ability to take certain risks that uh, you may not be as comfortable with uh, with other people's money. Uh, and it also saves you a lot of time. Uh, one of the things that uh, I joke with uh, with folks is um, I get a lot less phone calls now from, uh, from LPs who are trying to learn, et cetera. I enjoy teaching, but uh, at the same time, sometimes you just want to do investing. Um, so really uh, the, the way that we think about the family office is there's two sides to it. One is investing and then one is building companies. Um, and so we've built uh, a, a couple of different companies. Uh, some we're you know, talking about publicly, some not yet. But the idea is just how do you build uh, something that is you and you keep that you know, 20, 30 year time frame. Uh, you'll make a bunch of mistakes. You'll learn as you go. But uh, uh, so far I'm having fun and, uh, and enjoying it, which is probably the most important part. Is the media business part of this now? So you're thinking of it like of a holding company and the media. And what are you doing with the media business? Because I'd love to hear, because you know, you teamed up with your brothers now. How's that all going? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that uh, content in some way um, is, uh, uh, you have to do it if you want to operate in kind of the digital world. Uh, we've been very fortunate that we had a long time horizon. There was no urgency when uh, when I started a lot of the content. And I think that that's probably one of the, the key things uh, that I've learned over time is uh, when you raise money and you do all this stuff like, you know, hey, let's go. Where's the, where's the monthly update? What, what's going on here? Uh, and that's great for some businesses. Like go as fast as possible is a really, really successful strategy for certain types. But it's also a really bad strategy for other types of businesses. And so, you know, I, I tend to think that uh, the way that we built the content business, we wouldn't have been successful if it had been, you know, go raise a ton of money right out of the gate, uh, go hire 50 people and, and, and go. And so that business uh, today has a bunch of different properties in there. Uh, and we think of some of it is just like very self-fulfilling of like the podcast I get to just learn. And it's amazing. I get conversations with Yeah, it's the best people. job in the world, right? Just sitting down and doing this. <laughs> It, it's funny to talk to you about it because I'm sure you feel the same way. Where uh, it's a privilege. You know, it's a privilege. Yeah, 
Well, there's people who, you know, look, I'm, I think I'm pretty self-aware about it. There's people who I probably would have a much harder time talking with uh, in terms of getting a meeting with them or, or uh, learning from them uh, if it wasn't under the guise of, hey, if you come and you talk with me, then I'm going to publish it to all these people and you'll get some value out of it as well. Um, so, so, you know, I don't take that lightly. Uh, but also uh, through conversations with a lot of people, if you think of the mainstream coverage of uh, this kind of whole new world, I think there's an opportunity to do it from a more native perspective. And so it's less of, um, you know, interviews one-on-one with people that you would expect in a podcast or or maybe something that you guys would do. Uh, And it's more kind of news-based and it's uh, driving at uh, ultimately what is the product that people want today. And if you really think about uh, many of the cable networks, uh, their closed systems, they uh, think of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies is a very small part of their coverage. Uh, and the people who are talking about it probably don't really understand that much about it, right? There's exceptions, but but just naturally, they got a lot of stuff going on. You know, what's going on in the oil market? What's going on in the bond market? And oh, what's that crypto thing? And so we think that there's an opportunity to just invert all that, like go to the open network, uh, go ahead and uh, uh, have folks who understand it. Um, and then on top of that, can you do this for an international audience? And so uh, one of the things about crypto that's very unique is uh, it is a very, very international market compared to finance. Globally, right? Yeah. And so, you know, look, I'm having fun doing it. We'll kind of see where it goes. But uh, being in the driver's seat and not having to go at a certain speed or, or uh, be forced to hire people or, or whatever uh, allows us to really experiment with a ton of different things. And some of it will work, some of it won't. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, as comes with uh, when it's your own money, you get the benefit, but also you take the risk. And, uh, you know, there's definitely been some things I've, you know, uh, experimented with. And I'm like, man, that was a real fast way to burn some money. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but you know, it's all part of the game and, and uh, it's fun that way. I've never seen the ground change so fast as in this space, right? You think for, for a short period of time, you think, right, I understand what's going on. And then like three weeks later, you're like, I'm so far behind. I don't know what the hell's going on. Everybody's moving ahead without me. How do you deal with that? Because it's really hard. Yeah, well, so part of giving all the uh, the outside capital back that was uninvested meant that uh, I don't have to worry about that anymore, <laughs> right? Um, I, I intellectually, know long- it's interesting, right? So you can't yeah. stop it. So, so that's basically what I do is I don't worry anymore about like, oh my God, I have to find every deal because, you know, the opportunity cost means that if I don't get in that deal, uh, I may not be able to raise money in the future. You know, all the things that go into kind of a fund manager and and, and their constant pursuit of like, I have to have the single best returns because it's a competition, you know, for the next fundraising cycle. Now I just go where my intellectual curiosity takes me. And uh, what's unique about it is uh, I used to deploy capital at a very, very fast pace and and the idea was, you know, small checks and then double and triple down on the on the best uh, uh, opportunities. And you build a heavily concentrated portfolio, but it's done by really wide open, you know, kind of top of funnel. And then over time, you concentrate. Now, I don't know. I've gone, you know, three, four weeks, no investing. Why? I just, I didn't see anything that I personally was interested in. And uh, uh, somebody told me this. I, I don't want to use their name because I'm not sure they'd be comfortable with it. But uh, they said to me, I only make investments in people that I'm really excited to talk to again. And I thought that was such a simple framework of just like, if you get really excited, whether it's your learning or, or you're, you're watching somebody or you want to support somebody, whatever, those are the things now that that's when I invest. And so when you you use that as your framework, 
you may go a long time without finding something that you want to invest in. And then you may find 10 things in a week that you want to invest in. And so uh, what it naturally does is uh, it leads into this other theme that I think is happening, which is if you were in uh, crypto broadly, maybe 2018, 2019 or earlier, you could be a generalist across all sectors. And you didn't need to be specialized in NFTs or in DeFi or in liquidity pools or in Bitcoin or whatever. Now it's growing at such a rapid pace and it's becoming so fragmented that the quote unquote industry is now like 10 different sub industries. And so you see the fund, uh, the funds doing this, they now have a DeFi lead, they have a, you know, NFT lead, whatever. Uh, and I think as an individual, naturally people are going to have to, uh, kind of focus or concentrate. Where are you going to spend your mental energy? Because if you try to do, you know, 1% of everything, you're going to be really bad at all of it. And, and I think that, you know, that that's natural. That happens in every market. But again, this idea of we went from season two, now we're in season three. Well, now generalists aren't going to be as successful as they were before. Yeah. And that's why I started the Thunder Funds, because I can then allocate amongst different hedge funds who have different experiences. Correct. So that guy does market neutral. That guy's a DeFi. That guy does arbitrage. That because it's too complicated for any of us to deal with anymore. I know what my focus is. You know, my focus is in the more on the kind of Web3, social tokens, NFT side of stuff. But that's just my focus. Other people are, as you said, deep into DeFi, talking language I don't even understand, you know. And that's well, if you, it's amazing. If you went and you looked at some of the best uh, innovations and or returning assets over the last, I don't know, five years, right? Uh, let, let's use two examples. So if we use uh, AMMs as uh, as one example, um, I, I recently had uh, Tom Farley on the podcast, who uh, is the incoming CEO of Bullish, but was previously the uh, president of the New York Stock Exchange. And what he talked you, about you was- You and I are on that interview together on Bloomberg. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 exactly. So, so uh, we did the, uh, the Bloomberg thing as well. Um, but what we were talking about uh, was this whole idea of um, he actually launched, I think it was a coffee contract or something, right? It's like some kind of esoteric uh, uh, instrument. And the biggest problem was whoever was going to be the first one to make a market there was going to lose a bunch of money. And you had to lose the money to then get liquidity to then make money. And that was a really hard sell to, to a lot of folks. Uh, and so the reason why he's so excited um, uh, about uh, the opportunity he has now uh, as the incoming CEO of Bullish is they're basically take this idea of an automated market maker, which was pioneered in DeFi and try to put it in a more centralized kind of regulated wrapper. Does it work or not? I have no clue. I have no uh, uh, thought process in terms of is that a good business opportunity or not, or is it a good investment? But if you think about that idea of an AMM now can be used for decentralized exchanges, centralized exchanges, and if we fast forward, I don't know, maybe there's a 50-50 probability whether every uh, exchange, including in the equity world, will have an AMM in the next decade. And so like, you start like, wow, that's pretty crazy. And so then if you actually go and you look at another kind of innovation, or, or let's do a financial uh, return. So Solana went up from $0.04 cents to $250, which sounds literally insane, right? You had to be absolutely out of your mind. I mean, the, the guys at Multicoin uh, were out of their minds. They invested, right? Uh, and, and I got to say, uh, we were out of one of the funds, uh, a very small LP in that first venture fund. And I remember when they first started talking about this stuff. We were like, what are you talking about? Like, I, I don't even understand what you're saying. And I would hear them explain it to other people. And other investors were like, like literally like, Kyle, stop telling me about it. 
right? So like this whole idea of like, oh, everyone knew is complete nonsense. Those two guys uh, absolutely should get way more credit than people give them because it was a, a courage to, to act, but also a deep conviction, even when it was unpopular with everybody else. And so the, the thing I take away from both of those is like, if you went and you asked a legacy exchange CEO, hey, do you, have you ever thought about making an automated market maker? They're like, it's impossible. It's not, you know, that's stupid. That, that'll never work. Well, somebody went and pioneered it, and now all of a sudden it'll get in integrated. If you went and you talked to fund managers about Solana when it first started, they're like, that's crazy. There's no way that's going to work. And these are people who are focused on the industry. So now what I think, which has always been true in venture, but in crypto is on steroids, is you have to look for the things that have nearly 0% probability of working because that's where all the asymmetry my, is. My best example of this that I think has shocked everybody and I'm, I haven't checked the maths, but I think they're right, is Bored Ape Yacht Club holders who bought it on the initial mint made more money out of that in the shortest period of time than any other asset ever. As far as I'm aware, it was 230,000% returns. And that's in a year and a bit, because what they got was these other assets. So if you said, I bought a I'm buying a monkey JPEG, which is not particularly exciting to look at, and I'm going to make 230,000% returns in a year, we'd have said you're fucking mad. Yeah, and this is a really interesting part of uh, of the analysis, right? So uh, I, I always um, – I think of Bitcoin as the reserve asset for the internet. I think of the Bitcoin community um, as uh, uh, sitting kind of on a pedestal in the sense of there are many, many people in the Bitcoin community who are not interested in the economic gain. Now, they understand that they will make economic gain, right, by holding Bitcoin, but they are not trying to optimize, how do I make as much money as I humanly possibly can? Uh, instead, what they say is uh, there, there's a humanitarian aspect and uh, there's an intellectual curiosity aspect, uh, all these other things. And so uh, I think that's very virtuous. I think that that's- and very valid. Uh, you know, um, that's yeah, just like it, it's very, very good. I think there's a whole bunch of other people who say like, that's amazing, but- I don't belong to that church, right? I, I belong to the church of like capitalism and I just want to make as much money as possible. Neither one is right or wrong, right? It's just you're optimizing for two different things. Uh, it's obvious to see where they're going to disagree on certain issues based on what they're optimizing for, but but also uh, I think that you can uh, respect the other side and understand what they're doing. And so if you look at this capitalism uh, kind of pursuit of just how do I make as much money as possible, it actually has been do completely insane things that no one thought would work, like buy the monkey picture, right? And part of that is you were essentially, again, it, it, it wasn't a you're investing in a company. You were investing in a community or like this thing that no one really understood. I don't think anyone was like, oh, I'm going to invest in this asset and then there's going to be airdrops and this and that. And like, nobody thought that stuff. And if they tell you that, they're lying, right? But- what I think ends up happening is crypto ends up being a buy now, learn later market. And that absolutely turns off 99.9% .9 of people who hear that. They're like, that sounds like gambling. But I think that, that sounds is like VC investing, early stage. Well, well, I think that it is rooted in math. And so the, the math and the conclusion that I've come to is that in early stage venture, I'm going to use generalized numbers, but directionally correct. 50% of your investments go to zero. 25%, you get some of up to 1x your money back. 15%, you'll get 1 to 5x your money. 9% maybe is 5x to 10. And then 1% is 10x or more return. 
So if you look at the dispersion of returns, 50% is zero, 1% is 10X or more, and there's a bunch of stuff in between. In quote unquote crypto, in these tokens, if you are investing in the earliest stages, it's inverted. 50% are 10X or more, 1% goes to quote unquote zero. But there is no such thing as bankruptcy and running out of money and all this stuff because they have a treasury. And the other thing that happens is in venture, if you invest in the seed round of a business, everything looks great for the first six months, right? They're hiring people, they're doing uh, product development, they're doing customer development, et cetera. The first cohort of failures in the startup world, they run out of money in you know 12 to 18 months and they kind of fail. If you unlock the second round of capital, you now may uh, succeed or you may have attrition at the 36-month mark, right? And you kind of continue this, and after each round of funding, some people fall off, and only the best companies make it to uh, kind of the promised land. Well, in crypto, what these founders are doing is they're taking the thing, quote-unquote, public in the first six months. And so they raise money, and then it's liquid, and it completely changes the capital markets and, and the return profiles, et cetera. And so when you think about that, um, there is a different risk return profile in this kind of super asymmetric, low attrition market compared to even traditional venture, which is obviously compared to like small businesses or anything there. And so in some way, the investors who were built to do well in venture are actually not necessarily as well built to do well in crypto. And so when you look at the best investors in the crypto ecosystem so far, they got a way different approach than the traditional venture capitalists do. And so naturally what I think will happen is some venture capitalists will understand this and they'll kind of transition their style and and strategy. Um, But I don't think you're going to see that many people go backwards. I don't actually think you're going to see that many crypto investors then become like traditional venture capitalists. Let me go invest in equity. And so that's like a really interesting thing because what you basically do is you have a one-way door to more and more early stage investing in this ecosystem. And if there's capital and kind of low hanging fruit or or kind of white space for people to go after, I think that we're just at the precipice of this like massive explosion of innovation uh, and experimentation. Yeah, because that's what it drives, right? It allows you to innovate at scale, experiment, fail fast, move on in a way that the traditional VC model, because you're dying, you're always dying a death until you get your next capsule, because it takes that while before you survive or die, the S-curve moment. But the S-curve moment over from the beginning in this. VCs who uh, who have gotten a bad name in the, in kind of the crypto land, uh, sometimes rightfully so, sometimes probably they get blamed for stuff that they shouldn't, uh, go back to this idea of let's change the nomenclature. They're not venture capitalists, they're risk capital. And if you want to start something, historically, you couldn't go to the local bank and get a loan to start a super, you know, a risky technology company. You couldn't go to your friends or your parents or your classmates or anybody. They're like, this is insane. There is no probability of this working. Like, don't even try it. But there was a special group of people who had risk capital who they said, what's the craziest idea you have? And I'll give you money. And so that actually was uh, a key ingredient, not the only ingredient, but a key ingredient to the explosion of the technology industry was the fact that people were willing to risk that capital. Now, what we have is we have the democratization of that in a very unique way, right? Bitcoin, for example, raised no venture capital money, has no CEO, no marketing department, no any of this stuff. It was funded by, quote unquote, the crowd. 
There are developers who get grants. There are miners who go and they build their own businesses. There are holders. There are node operators. There's all these kind of market participants that make Bitcoin successful. But there was no venture capital. And that's a very, very unique new thing that doesn't mean everything will be like that. But it also means that now there are multiple opportunities or options in capital markets for people who want to participate in this industry. And I think that's a net positive. Like, I think the more opportunity there is for capital, uh, the more uh, experimentation that happens, which leads to more innovation. I think this is a really big idea. And I don't think we yet understand what this means. Right? Yeah. We've completely changed at what point in the risk cycle do we take risk? Who can take that risk? How much risk you can take? Because you don't have to be, oh, the minimum investment size. You can put you know, five bucks in. It doesn't really matter as soon as it's liquid. It becomes public and tradable and more liquid earlier on. I mean, I think it's game-changing in ways I haven't even thought about. I think you're, you're onto something really, really important here, that it's, it's literally changing the face of risk-taking. There's also an uh, inverse relationship between size of investment and asymmetric possibility right? It's maybe the way to think about it. So the more asymmetric something is, the less money you have to put into it in order to uh, have a return that meets your criteria of like, this is worth it. And what that means is uh, in kind of the Bitcoin crypto ecosystem, there's so much asymmetry that actually people can write smaller checks and then make many, many more of them. So in some way, you get more funding for various ideas. Everyone puts smaller checks, and then the asymmetry makes up for those smaller checks, which is what you've seen in, in many of these opportunities where they're, you know, anytime you have thousands of X in gain in something, you didn't have to put a lot of money to work to be able to get a big return. And so I, I think that that is, uh, again, to, to your point, I don't think we fully understand this yet. But the same way that venture capital led to this like Cambrian explosion of technology startups and kind of the world ran and said, oh, my God, technology can solve so many of our problems. I think we're at the start. We, we haven't really fully realized this yet. But when you start to really crank up how much uh, experimentation can be done globally, because you also have expanded the pie of who can participate, I think that it's just a net positive for the world. Now, along the way, there's going to be bad actors. There's going to be scams. There's going to be like all the, all the risk, right? Like there's tons and tons of risk. But it goes back to the idea of this is risk capital. I don't think there's many people who, you know, I don't know, take NFTs, right? Forget decentralized, centralized, a good one, a bad one, whatever. If you buy 10 NFTs and you think all of them are going up 100x, you're a moron, right? <laughs> but if you say to yourself, hey, I'm going to buy 10 of them and I think maybe two will end up working and eight will go to zero and they're going to be completely worthless, then like you sound just like a venture capitalist sounds. I'm going to build a portfolio of assets. Some will work, some won't, like whatever. And so I think that we just got to be real, real careful of uh, people who are preaching that everything's going to work. We need that healthy skepticism but also understand that the economic incentive is buy now, learn later because of asymmetry. As that asymmetry gets arbitraged away and commoditized, that will change. And then you will get to a point where there's no longer buy now, learn later. Now it's, you know, what is the equivalent of the uh, discounted cash flow? And how should we think about valuations and, and price relative to value? Uh, and then you'll get a whole explosion of, you know, the quote unquote value investor and, you know, all that stuff. It's just these cycles happen, you know, in these asset classes where you just happen to be at the very, very early stages of it. And so the idea of value investing is so far, you know, put off that people aren't thinking about that. 
So let's assume that most people don't get a look in the pre-token side, right? Because that's still a closed club. So, you know, Correct. there's a bunch of, uh, there's new participants in it, people like Delphi Digital and whoever, they're, they're not traditional VC. Um, but let's say relatively early stage tokens that are listed, how do average people figure out, because everything sounds amazing. This is why I don't do VC and I don't look for these 100Xs because everything sounds amazing or everything sounds stupid. And usually everything I think stupid does really well and everything I think sounds amazing does terribly. How the fuck are you supposed to do this? Yeah. So first of all, Delphi, you mentioned, uh, you and I probably have more information than the average person, but uh, I think that they are the single best investors over the last decade in any asset class, point blank period. And that's a crazy, crazy statement. But when you look at uh, what they've done, um, it, it's incredibly uh, uh, impressive. Uh, one of my biggest mistakes in all of, uh, of my kind of crypto journey was uh, I actually sit on the board of directors of their research business. And they went to start the fund, and they were like, you should invest. I was like, ah, well, you guys never managed a fund before, et cetera. That was very dumb. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, they're stupid, and then there's that decision. Is and that no investors. You could have been correct. the only investor. Co correct, correct. Uh, and, and instead, I'm uh, just like everybody else and not invested, um, <laughs> but, which uh, which they'll appreciate that I, that I uh, uh, now recognize how stupid I was. But um, in, in terms of uh, really kind of thinking through the average person, like they shouldn't invest in any of this stuff. Like, I think that's the takeaway is actually what you should do is you should like go learn about Bitcoin and just dollar cost average into a, a hard asset, maybe rather than buy real estate or, or Let's bonds. Let's assume that the audience watching this are relatively sophisticated. I, Correct. They got their heads around the asset, you know, because I, I, I struggle with this as well. It's like, you know, it's really difficult to know because I really would love to do some early stage, more earlier stage stuff, but I just don't know how to get to grips with it. I actually think... Even the sophisticated folks, I, I have this like uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, decision level uh, that you go through. First is do nothing by Bitcoin. Second is, okay, I want exposure to other stuff. Uh, give it to the fund managers, right? Third is uh, buy the blue chips. Fourth is, okay, now I'm going to uh, go ahead and actually do research on this stuff. And um, when you get into the research, I think one of the, the crazy, crazy parts is you don't know. Yeah, this, and your point struck me earlier, as you said, the things that sound really stupid are probably the better bets. Uh, go back to uh, the things that are going to have the most value in this are native to the technology. So two examples are uh, yeah, Uber with iPhones. Uber was not possible for the iPhone because most phones didn't have GPS. The second that the iPhone became uh, a well-adopted uh, piece of technology, now you could have the driver and the rider with GPS on them, and you could have them meet when they actually hit a button. That's a big deal, right? And so the idea of Uber became possible when the native adoption of iPhones was obvious, if you go back to the internet age, there's lots of newspapers that were like, oh my God, the internet got created. This is amazing. Let's PDF our newspaper, put it on in a static website, and anyone in the world could read it. And like, sure, maybe that had some value, but that missed like 90% of the value. There wasn't dynamic headlines, social media distribution, CMSs, multimedia content, like, you know, all, all the things that ended up making uh, kind of content on the internet valuable. And so I think that what we saw was a lot of those newspapers struggled uh, and these like new native newsrooms ended up 
getting ahead. And, you know, there are some newspapers like New York Times, et cetera, who have uh, kind of pivoted and, and adopted uh, and, and transitioned well, but there's a lot that ended up going to zero, right? And just being disrupted. So when you look at like, what's going to be valuable in the future, that's one of the biggest things is just like, what's native to this technology. And so if you think of, you know, Bitcoin as, uh, as kind of the easiest example, because most people will have the, the most knowledge there, it's just like, okay, if I have a decentralized currency that's an automated central bank, like that's very unique. You didn't have the technology to do this before. Now you do. And so you get the technology innovation and like what's this unique thing that's now possible that previously wasn't possible. And I think that's why Bitcoin has, you know, such a huge opportunity. But if you then start to think about like all these other things, uh, automated market makers, right? Or uh, uh, lending and, and all this stuff, like- there is a native component to some of this where there's going to be value. The other thing I'll say is not only like, is it crypto native or is it not? The people still matter. And this is actually one of the things that a lot of folks overlook. What does the project do? That's like me showing up to your company and saying like, what do you guys do? And never asking you a single question about who you are, what your thought process is, what's your vision for the future? You know, what's your background? Are you a winner? Are you not? Like all this stuff. Like, no, when you invest in a business, the people are the most important part. And I think that because we think of like, oh, it's decentralized. Oh, you know, it's it's automated. There's protocols, whatever. We forget about the people. And I think that a lot of people would be much better off if they went ahead and they actually still underwrote the individuals themselves as uh, whether it was going to be valuable or not. So final broad question is the next phase of mass consumer adoption is unlikely, in my opinion, to be about owning cryptocurrencies per se. It's about the applications layer. Where are you seeing this? Where is the big thing that is going to get the billion people in it? You know I love you because I'm going to give you like the the softball clip for uh, for, for real vision. But uh, I used to say all the time, we are going to tokenize the world, and the whole idea of this was uh, every single stock, bond, currency, and commodity will be a digital asset. And there are a lot of people, uh, specifically in the Bitcoin community, they didn't like that because their whole thing was, you know, it's shit coins, it's scams, it's all this stuff. And my position always was, it doesn't matter where it's ultimately going to happen. It's going to happen. So sometimes uh, it may happen on Bitcoin. Sometimes it may happen somewhere else. And I think for a long time, the Bitcoin community was like, it's never going to happen because all these other platforms are scams. Well, now there's a crossroads. And if we go back to this idea of there's open-minded Bitcoiners and there's not open-minded Bitcoiners, the open-minded Bitcoiners recently came out and uh, some folks at Lightning Labs, uh, Roast Beef, the, the CTO there, they put forward a, a, a plan to launch something called Taro, T-A-R-O. And this is a protocol built on top of Lightning that will allow for asset tokenization, including stable coins and everything else. And so if you said that all tokens are not valuable, are we now going to change our mind and say, oh, no, only the tokens built on top of Bitcoin are valuable, which would be a fair position for some people to take? Or are we going to stay with, no, everything built on top of Bitcoin and Lightning is not valuable as well, which, again, could be fair. Or... When people see it built on top of Bitcoin, will that then open their minds to, oh, wait, this may actually happen on different protocols. And oh, by the way, those other protocols are no different than trying to choose between different databases, right? And when I'm building any other type of asset, 
I don't know what ends up happening, and I don't think there's going to be one single solution. But what I do think is that it is very obvious that Bitcoin is using the altcoin market as R&D. And so when it sees something that is working, there is an effort, whether people like it or not, to incorporate that stuff into Bitcoin. And I tend to think that if it makes Bitcoin better, it goes back to this idea of zero sum versus uh, kind of positive sum mindset. If it makes Bitcoin better, then that's good for Bitcoin. You don't need other people to lose in order for you to win. Now, that isn't necessarily goes going against the idea of you can't call out scams or, or other issues. But what it does mean is that as we watch this occur, we have to be focused on if asset tokenization occurs on top of Bitcoin, then that is ultimately good for Bitcoin. And that is good for the people who are using those assets. And we should be happy with that if you're in the Bitcoin community and vice yeah, versa. I think that in the end, we shouldn't care. If I want to send you an asset, I don't care. Like I always say this, I don't know what computer you're on, what telephone network you're on, what software you're running, and I don't care. I don't like HTTP. I'm not using HTTP anymore. They're scammers. (laughs) So I want to send you value. You want to receive value. If you happen to be a Bitcoin developer and you develop that on Bitcoin, good on you. You've created value. If it happens to be on AVAX, good on you. You've created value. That, that's what's going on. The thing that I think is even bigger than the tokenization of everything, and I've always held that. When I first saw Bitcoin, I figured the entire financial industry is going to this immediately. Immediately. It's actually the slowest thing to happen was Correct. securities. I, that was, I was dead wrong about that. But I've now realized that every single contract is. Yep, I agree. Basically, NFTs are unique contracts. And the smart contract technology means that every asset and every contract, I mean, that's kind I mean, of well, well, it goes back to the idea of automation. Like a smart contract is just code that executes automatically, right? So like at, at the end of the day, these like quote unquote smart contracts are just a form of automation. Uh, and and uh, a non-smart contract is a really, really inefficient way in comparison to a smart contract. And so naturally the world is going to pursue efficiency, lower costs, faster uh, transaction times, et cetera. Yeah, and I was thinking about the term, is it automated finance or does it sound better to be just digital finance? You know, it's but you're right. How we refer to these things is going to be crucial to make them not sound threatening. Decentralized Correct. finance sounds like you are bad, we are good. Cryptocurrency yeah. is like, we've got a new currency that's better than yours. Web3, as I said, it's like, oh, I've got to upgrade because I'm on Web2 now. It's Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I think the holy grail, and, and I think specifically for the Bitcoin community, the holy grail would be if you get assets built on top of Bitcoin, they can fly around the world instantaneously, completely for free. They're secured by the most decentralized, secure computer network in the world at the layer one. Uh, and you can get it into the hands of all these different people. Like that is a grand slam. Like, and we should be laser focused and, and go and doing that. There's going to be people who build other stuff, right? And if you're in the Bitcoin community, like, Cool. Guess what? Somebody today is building a bakery shop down the street. I don't give a shit if it's good bake uh, uh, cupcakes or not. And like, could I go down there and they say, you know, world's best cupcakes and I try it and it tastes like shit. And I'm like, you're a scammer. Like, no. And so I, I just tend to think that like the world is a positive sum. It's abundant. Uh, you can have this open mind. Don't be rigid. The world is sh- uh, kind of shifting underneath us. Constantly reevaluate your perspective. Uh, and if you do those things, it does not guarantee you that you will be successful, but it will damn well increase your probabilities of ending up and accomplishing your goals. And that's ultimately what people are doing. They just want to, how do I get a couple more percentage points of probability that I'm right rather than wrong? Uh, and you're doing all right if, they, if you can accomplish that. There endeth the pomp lesson. Brilliant, my friend. 
Loved it. Fantastic conversation as ever. You opened my mind on a whole bunch of stuff I hadn't even thought about. I need to digest some of this as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. We'll definitely do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Take care, my friend. You know, my key learnings from this was how far in advance you have to think and how adaptive you had to be. And that was what really impressed me with Pomp, is how adaptive he's become in his thinking. His brain is very fluid in looking at the possible opportunities here, and I just thought it was really amazing. I think there's so many big impacts of what we talked about, it's hard to sum them up. But just understanding how big DeFi is alone in changing the entire world of finance and how even the word DeFi may be something we'll have to move away from and move towards a digital finance or an automated finance world. It's every time I look at this and speak to people like Pomp, I realize it's bigger than I ever thought. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com. That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.